Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Melissa Jacoby, professor of law at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. We'll be discussing her essay, Shocking Business Bankruptcy Law, which is forthcoming in the Yale Law Journal Forum. I'll add a link to the essay in the show notes for the episode. Melissa, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Melissa, you open your essay with an illustration of an ice cream shop that is your favorite ice cream shop. And and there's one near my apartment that I'm also a fan of stopping in. And that's the Ample Hills chain of ice cream shops. And you use this example of Ample Hills Creamery to illustrate some of the shocks that the COVID-19 pandemic delivered for small businesses like an ice cream chain. Could you talk about the Ample Hills example and maybe what that means more broadly for shocks when it comes to business bankruptcies? I'm embarrassed to report that several of my favorite ice cream companies ever have gone bankrupt. But I think the Ample Hills story works really well for showing both what bankruptcy could do, but also how hard it can be on the average smaller business bankruptcy filer and the personal toll that takes. So Ample Hills filed for bankruptcy right when things were starting to shut down on the eve of the COVID-19 pandemic. And COVID didn't create the business and financial problems that Ample Hills was experiencing, but it definitely shaped what happened after that and limited the market probably for who would buy their company and everything that came after that. And the owners of Ample Hills, the former owners who dreamt up this business and created it and then expanded it a little bit too much, and maybe then a lot too much, they really were not spared. They had to file their own personal bankruptcy case. So they lost their business and their apartment and had to start over in a lot of ways. And that makes a really interesting and troubling contrast to what we see going on in some of the big enterprise bankruptcies that sometimes go by a different set of rules. True that I wanted a reason to talk about my favorite ice cream in New York, but I do think there's a bigger story to tell there. I'd like to get to that bigger story. And in the essay, you criticize two practices that you refer to as a la carte or off-label bankruptcy. I'd like to get to those in just a moment, but could you introduce for the listeners from a normative, from a practical, pragmatic place, how is business bankruptcy supposed to work? Here's the thing. If you ask a group of faculty who focus on anything to agree on, say, whether today is a Tuesday, you'll probably be in that meeting for quite some time. They can't get agreement on some of the most simple things. And that is definitely true about business bankruptcy more generally, that there isn't agreement on exactly what it should be doing. And even whether it should have one purpose, a hundred purposes, I am of the view that a complicated law cannot possibly only exist for one purpose. But if we want to look at one driving reason to have the system, it is as a response to over indebtedness. I think that's the most reasonable way to interpret when we have a federal system justified by a very short clause in the American Constitution. We need to have some boundaries on that. In an article that I published in 2018 called Corporate Bankruptcy Hybridity, I try to 
flesh this out. I talk about business bankruptcy as functionally a public-private partnership. It's meant to achieve these public objectives, including responding to over-indebtedness, but that doesn't override other constitutional and democratic principles and priorities. And what that means to me is that business bankruptcy should be modest in what it can achieve and not reach out to solve all sorts of problems. Now, the traditional reason that Congress created a maximalist or expansive Chapter 11 reorganization system is it did want to save financially troubled companies. It wanted to save their jobs. It wanted to give those businesses a way to continue on relationships with suppliers, communities that relied on them. That is very deeply embedded in having a reorganization system. The thing is, along the way, whatever one thinks of that goal, the system is being used much more flexibly. And then it's a really important question to ask whether this federal business law has any business intervening in so many different kinds of legal problems and relationships. In the essay, you tackle two concepts or practices that you refer to as bankruptcy a la carte or off-label bankruptcy. What do you mean by those phrases or by those concepts? What what do they, they cover? And what do they mean for the balance between business creditors and business debtors in the bankruptcy process? So the term bankruptcy a la carte covers a phenomenon where chapter 11 is unbundled. I think of it as a chapter 11 is a package deal. So it has some incredible legal perks in it that Congress has provided. And it makes no sense for Congress to provide those perks unless they are surrounded by this broader package of benefits and burdens. And the beneficiaries of the package is pretty diffuse. It absolutely includes the creditors in that case, but it does reflect other broader concerns. And it also reflects things like due process, other constitutional values. I originally started thinking about this and working with your colleague, Ted Janger. We were looking at standalone, very fast-going concern sales, both in some of the biggest, most high-profile cases in the system, but also much smaller cases. And we expressed a lot of concern that while those quick cases can be value-maximizing sometimes, and that's certainly one of the goals that bankruptcy has, it is not inevitably so. And we were also worried about the way that those sales affected distribution to various creditors and stakeholders, as well as whether they were maximizing value. My own work on this is pushed forward because I did a deep dive into the Weinstein Company Chapter 11, which was filed in Delaware about six months after the big announcements of the findings that Harvey Weinstein and the Weinstein Company had been involved in a variety of types of sexual misconduct. Uh, harassment, assault, the allegations went on. And uh, people probably remember that pretty well. But uh, in looking at that case, and I listened to all the hearings, followed the docket closely, it becomes very clear that unbundling a Chapter 11 with a company that already had faced such scandals and was practically already dead by the time it filed its Chapter 11, that there were beneficiaries of the perks of bankruptcy being distributed there, but not in the way that Congress had intended. So the three big components for people who are interested in business law are the sale, lending agreements, 
and other contractual relationships, which were a really big deal in an entertainment-intensive company. I hope to have a working paper out on this soon. The case took a while to resolve, but that really got me puzzling through how the benefits of bankruptcy are extracted and reapplied to those with the most power in these particular cases and indeed in our financial and economic system more generally. I'm not saying that bankruptcy must be a bundled system, that you have to take all the benefits with the burdens. I think you can design a bankruptcy system that is structured quite differently. There are discussions about doing that to consumer bankruptcy that I'm favorable about. The issue is that these particular elements were designed as a package deal. And when you take them apart and let individual private actors make the key decisions about them, we end up with something very different and I think very hard to justify on the federal level of government. Off-label bankruptcy really comes from using bankruptcy for things that have nothing to do with over-indebtedness. Now, already bankruptcy a la carte sometimes has situations that don't involve a heavily indebted company, but often there is a whole lot of debt and that is explaining what's going on. In what I'm calling off-label bankruptcy, these Bankruptcy is being used for things like litigation management by companies that not only are not over indebted, but are often quite profitable. And the extra layer of that is that they add perks to chapter 11 that we cannot find in the bankruptcy code. And so they're helping other parties. They're giving new rights to parties, reshuffling the deck of what's already in chapter 11 to make it more expansive in the protections that it is providing and doing so in a case that really has little to nothing to do with over-indebtedness, which makes me wonder why it's in bankruptcy in the first place. One example you give of that is Purdue Pharma and the family, the Sackler family behind Purdue Pharma. For listeners who aren't familiar with the story of Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers, could you maybe introduce that story? Why might the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma want to make use of an off-label type bankruptcy? And could you talk about some of the issues that the bankruptcy of Purdue Pharma raised in terms of the things that you're concerned about? The story of the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma goes back quite a few decades. And for those who want to see a television version of this, the limited series Dope Sick that's on Hulu is doing a very good job of putting the facts in broader context from well before the bankruptcy. But ultimately, because the Sackler family, as well as Purdue Pharma, has been credibly accused of fueling the opioid crisis, in part by understating the risks of addiction to their flagship drug, OxyContin, ended up really being a major contributor to the addiction and overdose crisis that this country and to some extent the world are experiencing. And Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family wanted a global resolution of these claims. Some of the claims were brought by states, Some of the claims are brought by individuals and families, some by other governments. Lots of different disputes going on, many different legal theories. And the idea was that the Sacklers would put in some of their wealth, although a pretty small proportion of it relative to what they're predicted to have earned from OxyContin, into a pot 
that would be used for opioid abatement and to compensate people who have been harmed by opioids. But the deal would be that they would get a release out of that. Now, of course, if you can get everybody to agree to a contract to settle claims, that's something that you don't need bankruptcy to do. But many individuals and states were not satisfied with the amount of money that the Sacklers were proposing to contribute. And some people dared to think that this was not only about money, that they wanted to see the Sacklers put on trial for the allegations that had been going on for decades. The Purdue Pharma Company and the Sacklers got quite a few parties to sign on, but not everybody. And there was a multi-district litigation proceeding going on that involved Purdue Pharma as well as a lot of other companies. But multi-district litigation cannot force the stoppage of state litigation and state actions. There is one court in America where you can get an injunction, including of state actions, every day of the week, every year, and that's bankruptcy. Bankruptcy has an automatic injunction that protects the filer of the bankruptcy, in this case, Purdue Pharma, that comes merely by filing the case. But the Sacklers wanted more than that. The Sacklers did not want to file bankruptcy themselves, but wanted that same protection. So they filed requesting the court to impose a supplemental injunction, which the court did. That completely changed the leverage of these negotiations because all of those actions directly against the Sackler family could not go forward. And basically, it pushed everybody back into the conference rooms and then the virtual conference rooms when COVID started. That's controversial enough, but I think what's really gotten the attention of the public is how the Chapter 11 plan for Purdue Pharma, which has been confirmed by the bankruptcy court and is currently on appeal, that plan not only protects the Sacklers in perpetuity against litigation, but it also protects over 1,000 other parties that the Sacklers demanded also get releases whether or not they even contributed to the settlement. This is an off-label bankruptcy on many levels because Purdue filed for bankruptcy with over a billion dollars in the bank, and they would have had even more if the Sacklers hadn't already stripped out so much value from the company, which had been going on based on very credible allegations for a long time. And then they used and sought to use tools that aren't directly in the bankruptcy code, but said, we have nowhere else to go. And this is the only way to do the deal. So if you pick apart any of these features, the whole thing unravels like a sweater. They got these non-debtor releases approved along with some other features. And the case is rightly controversial. It is a very big example of this, but it opens the door to a lot of other similar examples. Even now we have the Boy Scouts in bankruptcy in Delaware. We have USA Gymnastics in bankruptcy in Indiana. And all of those are using bankruptcy as litigation management in those two cases for sexual abuse claims. This is turning bankruptcy into a mass tort court, which it was definitely not intended to be. And there are a lot of ramifications of that for the legal world, for the business world, and for the public. This is a pretty big set of issues with a lot of ramifications, as you mentioned. With that said, are there any policy interventions, any doctrinal interventions that you think we should be considering, even if we don't have necessarily a clear view of exactly what they are? Is there a new direction we should be looking to avoid some of the negative aspects of bankruptcy a la carte or off-label bankruptcy? There are several bills pending in Congress that 
probably won't pass, but that deal with pieces of this. But I think a more fundamental rethink is in order. Some of the pieces that Congress is considering include one bill, actually two bills, but deal with it differently, that limit the use of these non-debtor releases to say you cannot use bankruptcy to protect a non-debtor billionaire family like the Sacklers simply because this other company filed for bankruptcy to just stop that process, at least in some circumstances. I would have thought that could have been a nonpartisan piece of legislation that could move forward, but I continue to be naive about the ways of Washington. So not a lot of action has been seen there yet. There are also bills perennially introduced about forum shopping and the question of whether some of the practices are developing in the Chapter 11 and Big Chapter 11 bankruptcy system are a function of too small a number of courts having the chance to dive into these issues. And this gets amplified by the fact that it is very hard to get an appeal on the merits in a Chapter 11 due to a doctrine called equitable mootness that is court made by the circuits. So there's a lot of concentration of power in a pretty small number of very hardworking hands, but judges are human too. And so we need more eyes on these issues rather than less. That is a bipartisan piece of legislation. It is one that continues to be controversial. So we'll see what happens there. In general, I think on the bankruptcy a la carte pieces, I think it's going to be hard to put those pieces back together without really rethinking the financing of Chapter 11, especially in cases that don't get filed until the company is so heavily indebted, has given so many security interests on their assets. Indeed, Ample Hills, our ice cream place, was in that very situation. As it tried to expand dramatically its business, it borrowed way more money, granted a security interest on almost everything it could think of value. I showed those security agreements to my students to show them how a lender could try to lock up as much of value as possible, even though they can't get everything. And so when companies come in with that kind of leverage, literally and figuratively, and with the ability to use a bundled chapter 11 in all of its pieces and parts, you need enough money to make it through the process. We have a mismatch here between the financial situation of the very over-indebted companies and the way that the bankruptcy system works. So I think more thinking has to be done on the financing end there. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this interview and from your essay? The essay captures a couple themes that I'm developing and have been developing in a variety of projects. I'll just throw a couple out there. I don't think this is comprehensive, but just to get people thinking. One is chapter 11 is a hybrid between a negotiated business deal and complex litigation. And that's true for a lot of big multi-party federal or state litigation scenarios. There is incredible pressure for those cases to settle, for parties to compromise, for judges and the courts to incentivize coming and saying, okay, we have a deal. Those are issues that were flagged in the 1980s by federal court scholars, but they have big effects in the business world and they continue today. So I think we have to continue to ask, are we sure that encouraging settlement is always the right thing? Because first of all, it is limiting some of the litigation we could have on these issues. 
And second, it is suggesting that some values of our legal system are more important than others. And even if we think that might be economically beneficial, those benefits are not equally shared. A second point I would mention is that this field is very homogenous demographically. And the people it affects, especially in these cases, both on the sort of the off-label side of the opioid crisis cases, the sexual abuse claimant cases, in the bankruptcy a la carte example, such as the Weinstein Company, the effects of these cases are felt by a very wide swath of the population. The issues they raise are not simply narrow internal private law issues, assuming you believe in the concept of public versus private law. But this field really needs to reckon with what does it mean to have expertise? And how does this field maintain legitimacy when the people who are calling the shots, often in conference rooms behind the scenes, do not look like the population of people who are affected? These are some of the themes that I'm looking at. I have a book that will be coming out. I hope to have more news on that soon that looks across the bankruptcy system and the various ways that these structural factors and the ways they've developed have these broader effects on inequality and other values that I think everybody does or should care about. It isn't always just about the money, but even if we are talking about the money, I think we have a problem there too. That's my food for thought there. All right. Well, that sounds like an exciting book project. I hope you'll consider coming back on the show to talk about it when it's out there and available. I would be happy to. Our guest today has been Melissa Jacoby, professor of law at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. We've discussed her essay, Shocking Business Bankruptcy Law, which is forthcoming in the Yale Law Journal Forum. I'll add a link to the essay in the show notes for the episode. Melissa, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. I appreciate you having me on, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.